Welcome to the Stronger Than Autoimmune podcast. As an autoimmune warrior myself, I understand living with a chronic illness isn't easy. You're not alone. This podcast is to give hope. I will interview individuals living with autoimmunity along with experts and businesses to provide knowledge and support. As a health coach, I understand there is no cure for autoimmune disease, but creating small changes can influence how we feel and be stronger than autoimmune. Hello, Warriors. I had the pleasure of being able to speak to Paul Peter Tack. He is a business leader, academic, entrepreneur, and clinician who has over 30 years experience in medicine as a prominent expert in immunology, internal medicine, and rheumatology. Paul Peter is currently the president, CEO, and board director of Candel Therapeutics, the co-founder and board director of Centrix Therapeutics, and board director of Levi Sack and Citril. He has served as professor of medicine at the University of Amsterdam and holds numerous honors with a special focus on immunology and rheumatology. I brought him on the show to discuss his involvement with the vagus nerve stimulation to combat inflammation from rheumatoid arthritis, IBS, and Crohn's disease. So let's get started. Well, thank you so much, Professor Paul Peter Tack, <laughs> for joining me on the Stronger Than Autoimmune podcast. It's a pleasure. Yeah. And I brought you on because you made an amazing discovery about how the vagus nerve can be stimulated and it helps with chronic inflammation. So I think this is a huge finding and gives so much hope to the people out there with autoimmune diseases, especially me, I I have got RA, so I'm wanting to learn more and and how this works and what you actually discovered and how you discovered it. Yeah, so first, rheumatoid arthritis, as as you know very well, is still a big problem for many people, although I've seen incredible progress in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. It's a chronic inflammatory disease of the joints and has a big impact on patients' lives. So there's a real need to discover better treatments. And the goal should be to really reduce inflammation as much as possible. The goal should be the absence of inflammation, that nothing is better to um, treat pain, but also to avoid disability over time. So you want to reduce inflammation. And that's probably not a single solution. Probably you need multiple solutions and multiple modalities, types of treatments to really achieve that goal. And patients may also need something different over time, but always the rheumatologist who would typically be the treating physician and needs to measure whether there's still inflammation. And if so, then the rheumatologist and the patient need to have a good conversation. What can we do, right, to really reduce that? So uh, I was a professor of rheumatology for many years at the academic medical center of the University of Amsterdam. And we used all the modalities. So think of tablets, right, what we call small molecules, Uh, And also the big molecules that became very important, like uh, TNF inhibitors, was a revolution in rheumatology, and many other biologicals. Uh, So these are like antibodies and other big molecules 
that may interfere with pro-inflammatory molecules, molecules that drive inflammation in the body. Um, but again, with all the options that we had in our toolbox, we felt it was still not enough. And I had a discovery program in a small biotech company that I started a uh, long time ago in Amsterdam. It was called Atrogen, where we were actually focused on a form of gene therapy. And the idea was to inject something into the joint of a patient who had a lot of inflammation in that particular joint. So think of uh, one very big uh, and swollen and painful knee joint, while the other joints were actually responding well to the currently available treatments. And we thought rather than changing the whole concept of the, the treatment that seems to work in the other joints, why wouldn't we uh, create something that would have a local effect? So you don't need to change the other background medication. So we were very much interested in discovery of molecules that could play a role in driving inflammation locally. So what did we do? We took biopsy. So we took um, samples, tissue samples from the inflamed joints of patients with active rheumatoid arthritis. And then we isolated certain cell types that are known to play a key role in driving inflammation. And let's call them uh, fibroblasts. Um, because the real name is a little bit longer. <laughs> and uh, we, we cultured these uh, fibroblasts and in, an, in a laboratory setting. And then we inhibited, using a systematic screen, a whole variety of genes. There was a, a co collaboration with another um, uh, company called Galapagos. And so we looked at thousands of genes and we asked the question, if you inhibit their function, what happens to the molecules that are pro produced by these fibroblasts that could drive inflammation, like cytokines and other molecules? Yeah. And in a completely unbiased way, uh, we discovered that a specific receptor, so that's a molecule that can respond to other molecules that bind to it, like uh, a key goes into a lock, right? So a certain molecule can bind to a receptor and then trigger a signal in that cell. We found in a completely unbiased way, uh, a receptor, I'm going to say it only once, <laughs> it's the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. And I'm going to call it for short, the alpha-7 receptor. Okay. And then alpha we thought, seven. we were not looking for this, and we thought, what's that doing? So we went to the literature, right? We looked up scientific papers. And he found very interesting literature by a pioneer in this field, who is Dr. Kevin Tracy. He's actually a neurosurgeon and a great scientist based in New York. And he has published in uh, models in mice, models of sepsis, so serious infection leading to a lowered blood pressure and death in these mice, that the alpha-7 receptor plays a key role. And that if you think about the pathway, then there's a nerve that's called the vagus nerve. It originates in mice, but also in men, in the brainstem, and it goes throughout the body. It like, like a straight line, correct? Yeah, it goes to all kinds of places. It uh, goes via the neck, right? It's on both sides of your neck. Mm -hmm. And then it goes to the heart to the lungs, to the, to the gut, etc. So this is well known actually, it determines uh, heart rate variability. 
so how your heart responds. Uh, it determines in part your uh, respiration. It determines in part the activity of the gut. But the interesting thing what Kevin Tracy found is that it also controls acute inflammation. Mm. So if he stimulated, for example, the vagus nerve, and ultimately that leads to the release of so-called neurotransmitters, molecules that are released uh, by, the, by the nerves, and, these, uh, and this is called um, acetylcholine, and this binds to this alpha-7 receptor. So he demonstrated that if you stimulate the vagus nerve with an electrical signal in these models of um, inflammation in mice, of sepsis, of infections, then they could actually be protected against dying and against uh, getting low blood pressure, hypotension or sepsis. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe this could also play a role in chronic inflammation. So that's how we actually started to, to think about this pathway. So it's really asking a good question first. If you never ask the proper yeah. question, you're not going to go down that, <laughs> that road. Yeah. yeah. And that's a very important point. So uh, yes and no, I would say, because first we asked the question, but we got an answer that we did not ask for. Mm -hmm. Because I was looking for targets for my gene therapy approach. Uh, and actually that went nowhere because we, in a completely unbiased way, sometimes this is called serendipity, we found that there, there's maybe another pathway that's interesting. And actually I took it back in my academic unit and we wanted to understand how could this alpha-7 receptor and this whole pathway that we then called the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, cholinergic means it signals through acetylcholine, the molecule that is released by the vagus nerve, Mm -hmm. And anti-inflammatory means it reduces inflammation, of course. Um, could that play a role in chronic inflammation? And that's why we tested first in more detail in vitro. That means in a tube, basically culturing these cells and doing all kinds of things. What would happen uh, if we mani manipulated this pathway? But then we wanted to happen what happens in vivo, in the intact organism. Uh, you can't go straight to humans. So we also tested this concept in mouse models of chronic inflammation. And we focused, because I'm a rheumatologist, on mouse models of um, rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, what we did first is we tried to immunize the mice against collagen, plays a role in the connective tissue. And this is a well-established model of rheumatoid arthritis in mice. It's not the same, of course, but it looks a bit like uh, rheumatoid. So, and we tested the immunization that's called uh, collagen-induced arthritis in mice that lacked the alpha-7 receptor. Mm. So that can be done through molecular engineering. So you can knock out these genes. Uh, this gene that is called the knockout mouse model. And we found that if you knock out the alpha-7 receptor, that the mice got more arthritis. So they had more pain and swelling in their paws. And if you looked at that using uh, x-rays, there was more destruction of bone and cartilage. And you could also uh, take the tissue samples and look under the microscope. And this was all conf confirmed. So that su supported the view that the alpha-7 receptor, if you knock it out, then you get more inflammation. There's less control by this cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. 
And then we thought, well, another key component of this is the vagus nerve. What happens if we dissect, so you cut actually the vagus nerve on one side in the neck? Okay. You can't do it on both sides because then the mice stop breathing. And well, yeah, yeah, you need to continue the project yeah, <laughs> or an experiment. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, you don't get to results. So, what we found is that if you do so called unilateral vagotomy, that means you dissect or cut the vagus nerve on one side, then also the mice got more arthritis. So, it's like a circuit almost, right? That you can dissect at different sides. You can dissect the vagus nerve, you can knock out the alpha 7 receptor. And then the control by this vagus nerve system is lost and the mice get more arthritis. Mm. But I'm a physician. I don't want to create more problems. I try to reduce arthritis. <laughs> I try to reduce inflammation. <laughs> so we thought, how can you actually stimulate this pathway? And we started in a kind of um, simple way. We, believe it or not, we gave the uh, mice nicotine in the drinking water. <laughs> that so, is so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it was an interesting experiment because smoking is clearly bad for you, right? Right. But there's much more in smoke than nicotine. Mm -hmm. And we know that nicotine stimulates multiple receptors, but it includes the alpha-7 receptor. So we thought, well, if there's no effect whatsoever, maybe there's, there's, there's no way forward. So we gave the mice um, in the same collagen-induced most model of rheumatoid arthritis, nicotine in the drinking water, and uh, compared to um, mice that just got uh, saline, right, salt water. And we could show that nicotine had a beneficial effect on poor inflammation, pain, mm -hmm. swelling, uh, and also on bone and cartilage. Uh, but then we felt, well, it's, some mice took more nicotine than others, right? So let's now repeat the whole experiment. And now we're going to inject it um, in their peritoneum, in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the belly, basically. Okay. A very specific dose. And we could completely confirm this experiment. So then the question was, well, maybe it works through another receptor, a receptor other than the alpha-7 receptor. So then we spoke to a few companies that made specific molecules that stimulated only the alpha-7 receptor so-called alpha-7 receptor agonist. And we tested multiple, and we uh, administered them to the mice in this collagen-induced arthritis model. And we could consistently show that it had a beneficial effect. Hmm. So we published this many years ago, that if you stimulate the uh, cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway, which was later coined as inflammatory reflex by Kevin Tracy, who I mentioned already, mm -hmm then it leads to a beneficial effect. So you could develop uh, a tablet, uh, an alpha-7 agonist, and test it in rheumatoid arthritis. We've not done that. Because the other hypothesis that we had, that we published in Nature Reviews Rheumatology many, many years ago, was that you could also stimulate the vagus nerve with an electrical signal, similar to what Kevin Tracy had done in acute models of sepsis. Okay. And then we worked together with a company that was actually founded by Kevin Tracy called Setpoint Medical. They're based in the US. I was based in, in the Netherlands. And we worked together and did an experiment in a, uh, actually this was in rats, but it's the same principle, collagen-induced arthritis in rats, very severe disease actually, where the 
um, vagus nerve was stimulated with an electrical signal for 60 seconds per day. That was all. And it led to reduced inflammation and protection of the bone and the cartilage against destruction. So this was kind of wow. phenomenal, right? I could hardly yeah. believe it. Yeah. How long did that take? I mean, 60 seconds for, you know, so many weeks or? Uh, yeah, per day. I forgot the okay. exact timeline of it. It's good question. We've published all of this, what, what I'm referring to. But we're talking about uh, not more than weeks. Okay. Wow. You can actually see effects even in patients. If you look at certain biomarkers that you can measure in the blood, you can see changes after just a single stimulation. Really? One, yeah. one treatment? Yes, exactly. And uh, that, that is, I mean, it's quite amazing me think about it. Right? It was almost like it's, it's a kind of alternative medicine. <laughs> it's real. Yeah. Uh, but actually, it is real. And then, uh, because I'm not a mouse doctor, I thought I want to test as soon as possible whether this could be relevant for humans, for patients with rheumatoid arthritis, like yourself. And I went to the neurosurgeon at the Academic Medical Center in Amsterdam and said, this, there is a device was on, on the market um, produced and commercialized by a company called Cyberonics that has been developed and approved by the FDA for the treatment of therapy-resistant epilepsy. Hmm. And uh, are you able to implant this for me in patients with therapy-resistant rheumatoid arthritis? I wanted to do a small experiment where we would get a feel for, could this be relevant? If not, I would have carried on and do something else because we had many research projects. But if there would be a uh, proof of mechanism in humans, then I wanted to take it back and optimize it uh, and, and maybe get better devices by companies like Setpoint and other companies. Uh, and uh, so that's what we did. We did the clinical trial initially in therapy-resistant rheumatoid arthritis. This has been published in a high-impact journal called the PNAS. And we could show that in most patients, or many patients, that in patients who have failed basically everything, medicines like methotrexate and other tablets, and also they had failed TNF blockers, and they had also failed other biologicals uh, with a different mechanism of action, so like uh, tocilizumab, which is an IL-6 receptor blocker. So these patients did not respond to anything. Mm -hmm. And we found that in um, several of these patients, there was a very profound effect. So actually we could, in the blood, measure that we could reduce um, pro-inflammatory cytokines, so all kinds of mediators of inflammation, like, like TNF actually. Wow. Uh, and we could show that the disease activity in these patients, like pain, uh, signs and symptoms of inflammation in the joints went down. And some of these patients could actually discontinue their background methotrexate medication. They could stop their corticosteroid, like prednisolone treatment. Some of them when were stable in remission. In other words, had had no evidence of inflammation. Well, wow. we could stop all the other medications. So this is a small minority, but it is like a little miracle, right? Because yeah. you don't see placebo effects in these patients, generally speaking. So this was a very strong signal. And then we said, well, let's do another cohort. Then we look at patients um, with a slightly uh, uh, easier to treat um, uh, disease who had not necessarily filled TNF blockers, et cetera. And we, we could show the same in both cohorts, actually. So these data were very promising. And then 
So we, we run the, this trial uh, in Europe. I was the principal investigator. Uh, it was sponsored by Setpoint Medical, the company that I mentioned already. Uh, they've been pioneers in bioelectronics. Uh, we did the study. Most of the patients were recruited in my own center in Amsterdam. But we also had other uh, countries participating in Middle Europe in particular. Um, and then I also worked together, and it was in the same paper, with the same Kevin Tracy. So that's where our path came together, actually. Mm -hmm. He is a world leader in this field of vagus nerve stimulation, uh, with, uh, until then, a, a strong focus on acute inflammation. Uh, I approached it from the rheumatology world, and we came together here. And he did, actually, an interesting experiment, to come back to your question, where in patients who were going to get the implant, for therapy-resistant epilepsy uh, during uh, anesthesia, during narcosis, they stimulated the vagus nerve, uh, as they do also to, to test whether it's positioned well, etc. And they had taken, obtained blood samples before and after treatment and could show that there was an almost immediate, I'm talking about hours, uh, wow. reduction in TNF um, uh, um, activity uh, after just a single um, stimulation. So that's wow. beautiful data. And we could show that in chronic inflammation in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So that's how we got here. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, and like you said, it's all it was all by accident. I mean, you weren't going yeah, in looking for that. It was. Yeah, mm -hmm. initially it was because we were open-minded looking for new molecules. Then we found these pathways and, and pathways. And then we, in a very systematic, interrogated all these these different steps, right? What happens if you inhibit this pathway? In mice, you get more inflammation. What happens if you stimulate the pathway with, with nicotine, with alpha-7 agonist? Then you actually get the beneficial effect. Same is true for electrical stimulation in a VET model. And then we went straight to humans to test, is this actually relevant for, for patients? Because not everything that you can find in, in preclinical uh, rodent models can be reproduced in uh, humans. Actually, quite a lot cannot be reproduced, <laughs> unfortunately. But this was a super consistent story where every experiment worked. Wow. And where is this um, device implanted? Yeah, that's a good question because I I'm not commercializing it. Um, and actually, I moved on in my life, uh, not out of lack of interest, because I had a long career in academia, in rheumatology. We did much more than uh, work on the on bioelectronics and um, the vagus nerve, although it's super interesting. Um, and and uh, at this moment, I'm actually focused on uh, discovering and developing new therapies for patients with very difficult to treat cancer. Mm -hmm. Like I moved to the pharmaceutical uh, industry. I joined GSK in 2011, but I kept my affiliation with the AMC, AMC as a professor. So I was still the PI of the clinical trial wearing my academic hat. But at the same time, I was at GSK. Mm -hmm. And there was a senior leader, uh, the chair of R&D, called Monsef Slawi. He's very famous. And uh, uh, he uh, played a key role, actually, during the Trump years in uh, driving the vaccine program, right? You may remember. And um, at that time, he was the chair of R&D of uh, GSK. So Monsef was focused on the preclinical stages uh, in a whole variety of conditions. And since, since I became the head of immunoinflammation, so everything in autoimmunity worldwide for GSK, it was my first job there. 
uh, I spoke to him many times and, I, and, he, and he spoke about bioelectronics and I said, do you know that the first bioelectronics clinical trial is actually already in humans? And I'm, I don't think he was aware of it. And he asked me, so where, who's doing that? I said, well, I actually, <laughs> wearing, my, wearing my other head. We are in a, we're doing a rheumatoid arthritis clinical trial. And I spoke about the same Kevin Tracy and introduced Moncep to Kevin Tracy. He said, you need to reach out to them. And so Setpoint has continued to develop this now without GSK, right? And they have actually de developed their own device that they implant basically in the neck. Mm. So it's very, it's very similar in a way compared to the experiment that we did. But okay. a better device, probably uh, smaller. And they've done a new clinical trial and they've completely reproduced what we found. So wow. this works. I really believe this works. And then while I was at GSK, Moncef took the initiative to create a new company which is a venture part, uh, which is a merger, no, not a merger, which is a partnership, sorry, between Alphabet, the parent organization of Google, oh, okay. and GSK. So this is also a big thing, actually. And when I was at GSK, I was on the board of Galvani. Uh, the chair of the board was Monsef. So very nicely all came together. And they've chosen a different approach. Uh, which is good, right? Because you need to differentiate. They will find out uh, which approach is better and whether it matters, actually. There may be different ways to roam. Who knows? We'll find out. That's true. Uh, but what Galvani has done, they have focused on uh, stimulation of the splenic nerve, the nerve that goes to the spleen. So now you may wonder, why would you do that? We were yeah. talking about the vagus nerve and we were talking <laughs> about... Um, vagus nerve stimulation in the neck how do you end up in the abdomen actually right yeah and so uh, if you allow me I, I need to speak a little bit about the mechanism of action about Please. the hypothesis and this is all groundbreaking work again by uh, kevin tracy in uh, preclinical models so very briefly and simplified if you stimulate uh, or let's say if there is inflammation in the body then through the afferent uh, uh, fibers of the vagus nerve, there's a signal towards the brain. So the brain will sense inflammation. I think this is a breakthrough because we didn't think about uh, the neurological system in this way in the past. Huh? And then it leads to a subsequent signal, which is an efferent signal downwards um, from the brain to the body to control inflammation. And that's why Kevin Tracy called this the inflammatory reflex. Mm. It's like a reflex. And um, so you get the signal going down through the vagus nerve. It's in the neck. It goes through the body. It gets into the abdomen, right? Certain parts go to the different organs. But then this signal, uh, signals, signal will ultimately translate in stimulation of the splenic nerve. Okay. Which is critical for its effects. So that actually, the, uh, that's maybe a little bit too, too technical. So... Uh, this, this signal into the spleen leads to changes in inflammatory cells and immune cells in the spleen. And okay. very interestingly, there's a key immune cell called T cells. I think everybody knows about T cells after COVID-19. Yes. Uh, right? This has been like a big educational uh, course uh, about immunology. Many people have misinterpreted that, oh, by the way. 
misunderstood, but everybody will know that T-cells are important. Mm-hmm. So that changes to the T-cells, and you know what they are going to produce after stimulation of the splenic nerve. These T-cells are going to produce acetylcholine, which is, produ- which is also released by the vagus nerve. So you can see how the new, uh, neurological system, the, the neurons, and the immune cells talk to each other. Mm. Even using the same language, I would almost say, in some of the same molecules, like acetylcholine. So this acetylcholine is uh, released in the spleen. The spleen is a uh, very important immunological organ. And it leads to changes in, a, in another key immune cell, which is the monocyte. Monocytes are precursors of macrophages that play a very important role in immunity. And these monocytes change in response to acetylcholine that is released in the spleen, and they migrate throughout mm-hmm. the body. All the immune cells migrate, right? If I show you a, a tissue section, and you see all these cells sitting there, but that's like a picture. But real life is like a video, it's like a movie, right? It's all kinds of exciting stuff going on all the time. So these cells go everywhere, including to the joint or to the gut in inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So that's probably um, an important um, part of the mechanism of action. So if you stimulate the splenic nerve, you may also get actually this effect. And that's what Galvani is uh, studying. And uh, they're also doing experiments already in humans at this moment. Oh, wow. Yeah, so this field is advancing and we call it together bioelectronics. So this may be a whole new modality. So we have tablets, small molecules, we have biopharmaceuticals, we have gene therapy approaches, not necessarily in rheumatology. Uh, I abandoned that field, uh, but it might come back in a different uh, form. Um, There uh, is bioelectronics as a very attractive approach, I think because it seems to be, generally speaking, safe and well-tolerated. And I think it is appealing to patients. That was actually a surprise to me. Yeah. But I discovered that, you know, when I started my trial, I just wanted to really understand whether this could be relevant. I thought probably it's going to be very difficult to enroll patients in this trial because they could choose to, to be in a trial with other small molecules or big, big molecules, uh, biopharmaceuticals. We did a lot of trials in my center. And I thought, are they willing to undergo surgery? Mm. Right? It's not it's not major surgery, but still an intervention by a surgeon. So yeah. I thought, let's be imaginative here and make sure that uh, many pa- patients hear about it. So what I did, I reached out to the major newspaper in the Netherlands at the time, uh, which is called the Telegraph. It's like the Telegraph, uh, right? But that is the biggest journal. Nice. I gave an interview about this highly innovative trial that we were going to do and the background, how we got here, right? It's a nice story. And um, it was going, it was supposed to come out on Monday. There were no disasters that happened that weekend in the world. So I got a very prominent place in my interview on the front page of the, the of the Telegraph. Oh, One wow. third of it was my interview. So I, I remember I was still asleep. My phone started ringing. Was the communications department of the AMC wondering what's going on because everybody is calling us, <laughs> and we got thousands of calls of patients who wanted to participate. And then that evening, it was picked up by the news. I found myself on national television, <laughs> and then we got actually we got responses from people all over the world, from Mexico to Ireland to everywhere. 
so I learned that there's a lot of interest. So why is it appealing to patients? Because I think patients are interested in a kind of one-off procedure rather than taking medicines forever. Yeah. And this um, may not uh, be the answer in all patients, but it seems to be an effective treatment in a subset of patients. And it's very appealing because it's implanted and off you go. Right? Mm -hmm. And oh, you, can you can stimulate yourself for 60 seconds or maybe other settings. Still, we need to better understand uh, what is the optimal setting, but it may be also individualized, maybe different for different people. But that's attractive. That's one. And the second is, I think it appeals uh, because basically you are restoring the natural balance in your autonomous nervous system. It's about homeostasis, as it's called. You try to really restore natural mechanisms. And one very important piece of information that also supported my belief that this is relevant, I actually did not discuss, so if you allow me, I will briefly mention it. At Please. the same time that we did all these mouse experiments and everything, we did something in humans. We had a large cohort of people, individuals, I don't call them patients for a specific reason, who are at risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis and becoming patients over time. And we had identified multiple risk factors like autoantibodies and obesity and smoking and all kinds of things. And so we, we could identify people with a risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis in two years time with a risk of about 40%. So wow. we followed these people and we measured all kinds of things. So how can you measure vagus nerve activity? Yeah. You can measure, um, this is like electrophysiology, you can measure heart rate variability. Okay. And people who um, now wear wearables like Fitbit or, or uh, Apple Watch or whatever, know probably, and maybe you as well, what heart rate variability is, because you can actually get these data yourself nowadays. Yeah. Uh, uh, at least if you pay some money for it every month, I think. And uh, so it's a measure of autonom autonomous uh, nerve uh, activity, in particular the vagus nerve activity. So we did that in, a co in this cohort of people and we followed them over time. And we could show that people with a reduced vagus nerve activity had a higher risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis than those who do not have impaired heart rate variability. And in fact, it was even a very simple um, biomarker, I would say, which is uh, rather than doing all this very complex electrophysiology, we found that resting heart rate, which is also controlled by the autonomous nervous system, including the vagus nerve, is an independent predictor of developing rheumatoid arthritis in this at-risk cohort of, pay, of people. The, so if it's lower, it's better. Okay, so about 50, you know, 60, I mean, anything around that range. Yeah, well, well, we looked at, at a simple cutoff. I think it was 70, we published it. Uh, and I think if, if it was lower than 70, you were at higher, uh, you, had a, you were protected to a certain extent. It was, if it's higher than 70, then uh, you were at risk. In general, we know that uh, low resting heart rate is associated with better health over, over time, also better for your heart, your cardiovascular system. Uh, etc cetera, etc cetera. when i got covid i noticed that uh, and even after the vaccination by the way i could see that my resting heart rate went up immediately so it's very interesting yeah. it shows how fit you are basically and you can stimulate your vagus nerve if you are feeling well in many ways right 
not everybody will need an electrical device if they are healthy, but you could go to the gym because it has an effect. You stimulate your vagus nerve activity. You can consider meditation and, and other uh, uh, lifestyle interventions to, um, to um, in, improve potentially, they'll need to be proven, I think, um, your health over time. For, I think, cardio activity and, uh, and other exercise, this has been proven already. Okay. So yeah, because it makes sense because exercise does help lower your yeah. heart rate. And exactly. Yeah. So it, it it's all connected. I mean, it sounds yeah. like everything that we've been taught, you know, exercise, um, taking care of your BMI, because you said, you know, the lower the BMI, the better also. So yeah, it's all connected. It's all connected. So uh, also in rheumatoid arthritis, to come back to where we started, at first it's not one disease, but it is a syndrome consisting of different diseases. Uh, but there's a specific subset, a large subset actually, that is characterized by specific genetic predisposition and also development of antibodies called anti-citrullinated peptide antibodies. And this is actually associated with smoking. So um, again, I said that nicotine works in most models, but smoking is very bad. It's an unfavorable uh, risk factor, uh, not only for rheumatoid arthritis, of course. And if people have sm smoked in the past and they have this specific genetic background, uh, which is sometimes called the shared epitope, then they may develop these anti-citrinated peptide antibodies, and we'll call them ACPAS for short. And this is this was one of the risk factors that we followed in this cohort. And uh, then probably you need other uh, events to ultimately really develop rheumatoid arthritis because not everybody with ACPAS will develop RA. Uh, but we found that obesity is an additional risk factor. So it's clear that obesity is associated in general with a more pro-inflammatory state. There's more markers of inflammation in obese people. The fat tissue is uh, producing all kinds of factors. Um, we spoke about the vagus nerve and this whole cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway or the inflammatory reflex, which controls inflammation. So if, the, if this does not function like a break on the inflammation, that's a risk factor. Uh, there may be other risk factors like the gut microbiome. We did not speak about that, but you have a whole other organ in your gut where you have like four to six kilogram um, of uh, uh, bacteria, microorganisms, right? So let's say eight to 10 pounds, right? <laughs> and um, and the, the, they're not just sitting there, they produce all kinds of molecules, metabolites that interact with your immune system. Most of your immune cells are actually in the gut at any time point. And they also migrate throughout the body all the time. There's also a specific nervous system they're called the enteric nervous system. You know about the vagus nerve plays a key role there. Mm -hmm. And it's all signals to the brain and it all plays a role in different forms of information. So I think you, you touched upon this, that a human body is a holistic, integrated system. And scientists and physicians have always had the tendency to focus completely on one pathway and look at it in isolation, including myself. But what we've learned, I think, is that we need to look at the human body and health and disease in a much more holistic way. When you try to optimize all these factors, especially in so-called multifactorial diseases, like rheumatoid arthritis, it's like a perfect storm, different things come together. 
and that leads to inflammation. So what if you, if you could reverse that by actually stimulating this vagus nerve, by maybe changing the gut microbiome to a more healthy, uh, to a healthier state, and that needs to be proven. But we know already that uh, eating a lot of fiber, et cetera, and getting diversity in your gut microbiome is a good thing. Uh, and um, all these factors need to be taken into account if you try to treat the patient. But when the disease is really clinically manifest, you will need um, pharmacological interventions. And now we have potentially a new possibility, which is bioelectronic stimulation. I need to say this is not an approved therapy yet. This is an experimental treatment at this time. It's not approved by the regulators yet. We need to have more evidence, but the data look very promising. Yeah. How do we, what do we, what do you need? <laughs> I volunteer now. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've done a lot of drug discovery and development with all the modalities, at least for molecules, big pharma. Now I actually focus in cancer yeah. on so-called viral immunotherapy. So we now use viruses to change the, the whole tumor in such a way that the patient can develop a better immune response against the tumor. So we basically vaccinate the patient using the patient's own tumor. So wow. they use different approaches, but it, it takes a lot of time until you have the evidence that it is safe. That is the first, of course, it right. safe, well tolerated, needs to be effective. Ultimately, you need to show that it's cost effective, all of that, before you get approval, reimbursement, before it is embraced by patients and um, healthcare professionals. Well, that makes sense. And well, yeah. so it sounds like... RA or any of these diseases, because I, I, from my understanding, it also this stimulation or this pathway can be can help with IBS and other diseases. Um, yes. So these diseases aren't created by one thing, pretty much that's what you're saying. So in a way to heal, we can't just attack the healing in one pathway either or one way we got to just come from multiple ways so i'd be going to the gym humming eating my fiber (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) take your medication and take my medication at the same time (laughs) yeah exactly yeah no you, you got it completely so we need more holistic thinking about uh, mechanisms of disease. How, how do you get sick? But also, how can we actually treat disease? I like what you said about healing. That's a term that few physicians will use, actually, but we should use it. So if you think, I mean, I, I'm an immunologist. So if you think about inflammation, we tend to think about how can we uh, inhibit inflammation? So that's why I spoke about anti-inflammatory treatments. But at the same time, we need to think about how can we promote the healing mechanisms, which is focused on the resolution of inflammation. And these pathways are in part different, actually. And uh, I think we need all of these approaches and really develop much more sophisticated approaches to ultimately get rid of inflammation in older patients with chronic immune-mediated inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, so Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, other conditions potentially like multiple sclerosis, psoriasis, whatever you like. All these diseases share or syndromes, share certain molecular and genetic mechanisms, and also they 
have distinct mechanisms. So we need to understand that and have a kind of multifactorial approach to to um, treat patients so that they can heal. Yeah. Well, it, it you can't attack a problem with the same way of thinking. Isn't that what Albert Einstein said? Yeah. Like so, yeah. yeah. So You're a patient right. can't do the same things that we're doing before. They got to completely yeah. be different. So. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I mean, uh, it's also important to highlight the role of the patient. Um, so conditions like rheumatoid arthritis are chronic diseases. And I think you will have much better outcomes ultimately if there's a partnership between the treating physician and, and the patient. I always said to my patients, you are the person who will always be with you, right? With your disease. <laughs> exactly. So we're going to educate you so that you understand what we are doing, that you understand the choices that we will make together in a partnership. And also when you see, when you go to other doctors or whatever, that you can always protect yourself and always say, well, wait a minute, but uh, this is my background. This is uh, what I, th th this is how I respond to treatments, et cetera, et cetera. So the patient perspective and making the patient a partner uh, in the whole treatment paradigm is also an, an important aspect of this whole holistic approach here. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank and actually, as I said, patients seem to like bioelectronics approaches to come back to the vagus nerve. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it works rapidly. I mean, yeah. like you said, same day, you know, hours later. So it, it's, it seems simple and enough. I'm sure the road, it doesn't, I mean, obviously the road to get there is not simple. And then to even put into, to make it available to people is, is not a simple yeah. road, but it's amazing how the body works and I really appreciate the time that you took to learn all these mechanisms and continue to help people on a broader scale with cancer, with everything that you're doing. It, it's absolutely amazing. I'm very grateful for brilliant people like you helping people that are suffering. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I see it as a privilege to be able to do this actually. And first, it's fantastic if you work um, hard or if you try to uh, have an impact that you can really potentially improve the life of, of other people is an amazing thing, right? And the other thing is it's just fantastic to, to work on difficult scientific puzzles, right? So it's just, it's also from an intellectual perspective, it's very rewarding. So I, I consider it a great privilege that I'm able to do this. Yeah, you must like challenges. Also, <laughs> I like to be out, out of my comfort zone, yes. <laughs> and you know, being out of your typical area of expertise, I think that's often where you will get to new discoveries. So I'm not a neuroscientist at all. Right? I was an, I'm a specialist in internal medicine and rheumatology and immunology. And we got to this discovery, we started to work together with neuroscientists. So this is just to say that by looking at the areas next to you, what I call lateral thinking, you may get to better discoveries. And uh, this, so follow the science, follow curiosity, work together with people from different fields, and then you get this tension between different fields. And that's where you increase the probability that you will find something of interest. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, was, it, it goes back to what you were saying, you know, see things holistically. So seeing yeah. people in different, like you said, modalities holistically. So everybody benefits. Yes, exactly. Right. And so it, it's nice to solve a puzzle 
but it's even better if it can have an impact on uh, patients' lives. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm glad that you're making an impact the way you are. Well, thank you very much. It was a great conversation. It was really nice uh, meeting you yesterday. And good, good luck with your show. Thank you so much. You take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. There are three ways to show your support. One, rate the show on Spotify. Two, leave a review through Apple. Three, share the episode with a fellow autoimmune warrior so they too can have hope and be stronger than autoimmune. Paul Peter emphasized that having an open mind and working with others creates opportunities, growth, and possibly new technology. That's why I made this podcast. There is not just one way to combat chronic illness. What works for someone may not work for someone else, or maybe not at the time or at the moment. But having an open mind and experimenting can result into something unexpected. So keeping an open mind, warriors, And also, if you need autoimmune support, check out a free group session on Thursdays through Isla Health. See the link in the show notes. Until next time, be stronger than autoimmune.